Please stand, if you are able, for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 26, verses 21 through 26. Please read with me the verses in bold. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm all by myself. Can I have this microphone on? Late in the summer of 1939, despite the diplomatic efforts of Great Britain and other European countries, an authoritarian government was massing military forces along the border of a smaller neighboring country and threatening war, laying claim to their neighbor's territory, uh, referring to previous conflicts and injustices, both historic and fabricated as a justification for invasion. That same summer, a young pastor and theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer abandoned a prestigious teaching position at the Union Theological Seminary in New York City to return to his homeland, that authoritarian, uh, his homeland was that place of the authoritarian aggressor, Germany. He said, I've come to the conclusion that Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security and not share the trials of this time with my people. Two months later, Germany invaded Poland, unprovoked, and it was a turning point in the 20th century that led down a dark path. We sat around the table at our staff meeting this week, uh, considering the events of the past week, we we're shaking our heads. Someone said, it feels like 1939. And uh, someone said, I didn't think things like this happened anymore. 
And we were confronted even in our conversation with how arrogant our attitudes are, right? That somehow we're better than that. Um, that we have, uh, I don't know, evolved. Um, clearly not. Probably Bonhoeffer's uh, most famous book, arguably, is titled The Cost of Discipleship. Written by a man whose devotion to Jesus cost him his livelihood as a pastor, his career as an academic, made him a traitor in his own country, prevented his marriage to the love of his life, and ultimately led to his imprisonment and death. Now, some of you who have been around Grace Sacramento for a while will have to forgive me. If you've been here for a while, you know that Brad preaches a Bonhoeffer sermon about once a year. <laughs> but I couldn't think of anyone more appropriate to quote from throughout a message on a passage in which Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Especially given the cultural moment that we find ourselves in and the fact that today, as Lent begins, if we're following that Christian calendar and letting uh, the events of the Christian calendar form our experience, then as Lent begins, uh, we are at a turning point, looking down uh, a dark path that leads uh, Jesus and us following him uh, to his betrayal and to his death on Good Friday. So this morning, just two reflections on this passage with the help of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, first, the cross or your cause, and secondly, the cross or your life. The cross or your cause. Matthew 16, 21, which we read this morning, is the first time in the Gospels that Jesus talks openly and plainly about what must happen in the last days of his earthly ministry. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Very matter-of-fact and plain. This is what happens now. It's important to understand some of the context of the passage if we want to understand why Jesus decided that this would be the turning point in his public ministry. The chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 16, uh, opens with the Pharisees and the Sadducees demanding a sign from Jesus that says the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Some kind of proof about who he claimed to be. And what's interesting, uh, what's interesting about this is that it's a little bit lost on us, but Pharisees and Sadducees are not natural allies. These are not folks that would, would have gotten along necessarily if they didn't have a shared uh, conflict with Jesus. It might help you to imagine the Pharisees in the same light as maybe the most legalistic, the most fundamentalist, the most separate yourself from everything um, group of religious people that you've ever encountered. And now think about uh, the Sadducees 
as the most permissive, most progressive, most culturally accommodating group of religious people that you have encountered. From an outside perspective, from the Roman perspective, they were both Jewish. These are Jewish leaders. But they were actually, in fact, rivals in competition for influence and control over Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin, which was the leadership of the Jewish religion and Judaism. And so Jesus knows that when they ask for a sign, they're not actually looking for confirmation that he's the Messiah or that he is the Son of God. What they're looking for is a signal about whether or not Jesus is on their side. They want an indication of whether or not he's with them or if they are against him. It's not uncommon, uh, it's not uncommon around here to get a call or an email from someone inquiring about the church, and they have what I might call, uh, or what I sometimes call, a litmus test question. Does grace affirm the following positions, uh, political convictions, and causes? Does grace affirm the following positions on sexuality? And don't get me wrong, these are important parts of our life that we need to struggle with and see how the gospel impacts uh, our lives in these areas. But I'm not talking about folks who are calling uh, to, to struggle to follow Jesus in these areas. Uh, I'm talking about questions that will not be satisfied with anything but the already predetermined answer that they're looking for. A signal that we're on their side. Searching the scriptures to seek to submit these things to God is not a satisfactory answer for these inquiries. These are the kinds of signs that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were looking for. They're not interested in following Jesus as it were, but whether or not he will follow their agenda. And before we get too comfortable, it feels like we can make some separation between ourselves and the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Look at Peter. Earlier in this very chapter, Peter is the first to publicly profess Jesus as the Messiah. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in verse 16. Many commentators think that it's actually Peter's confession that is something of the starting gun for, uh, for Jesus' turn in his ministry. When Jesus hears Peter lead the, the profession that he is the Messiah. It, it can be seen. It's known what he's come to do. Uh, Jesus hears that, and then he turns his face towards Jerusalem. Okay, then, it's time to initiate the final days of this ministry and what must be done. That's what our passage seems to suggest when it says, from that time, Jesus starts talking about his suffering and his death and his resurrection. But what we find out really quickly is that, yes, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, but Peter very clearly has a non-negotiable definition of what that means, who the Messiah is supposed to be. And that includes probably toppling an oppressive rule of Rome and reestablishing a Davidic kingdom. It involves conquest and victory, not suffering and death. And when Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke him and advise him about what sort of savior he ought to be, 
it's a familiar conversation for Jesus. Jesus has already had a conversation with a guy in a desert who said that he could have, he could be God's king without enduring a cross. That he could have God's glory without denying himself. You can look it up. It's in Matthew chapter 4. The title will say something like, Satan tempts Jesus. That guy was Satan. And that's the name that Jesus uses for Peter in this conversation as well. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter's not that different from the Pharisees or the Sadducees. We're not that different either. Bonhoeffer wrote uh, in The Cost of Discipleship, so many people come to church with a genuine desire to, to hear what we have to say, and yet they're always going back home with the uncomfortable feeling that we're making it too difficult for them to come to Jesus. He wrote that passage during a time in which German churches, in his tradition, were being flooded with financial support from the government in exchange for a commitment by their pastors and leadership to become, quote, German Christians, which meant pledging loyalty to the Fuhrer. First German, then Christian. I wonder what qualifier history will put in front of our Christianity to describe the litmus test that we use to say who's in and who's out, the sign that we demanded, the kind of Messiah that we insisted Jesus had to be. White evangelical Christian? Democratic Christian? Republican Christian? Libertarian? Pick your party. Russian Christian? Ukrainian Christian? Jesus' description of discipleship doesn't require any of these. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's not lost on me that the accounts of Christ followers coming out of Ukraine right now are not very concerned with whether or not those folks are Orthodox Christians or Evangelical Christians or what uh, you know, flavor of Christianity they follow, but we're hearing stories of the fact that these are the folks that are refusing to flee, but instead are remaining to keep churches open as refuges for the displaced and orphanages running uh, for children uh, to seek safety and the like. Jesus, uh, in his call to discipleship, um, makes no room for us to put our cause before him, our qualifier ahead of our identity in him. So the cross in your life, the cross in your cause, the cross or your life. So Jesus refuses to let following him be a, uh, be a sign of submission to any other cause or uh, uh, conviction except his glory. He refuses to let um, Christianity be a subtitle to any other identity than child, or, child of God and follower of Christ. 
But his, his call also refuses to be separated from the way that we live our lives day to day, moment by moment. So uh, he, won't, uh, he won't take second seat to our cause, but he also won't take second priority in our lives. We're always tempted to separate what we believe and how we live into separate categories. Sometimes we do this by living in kind of separate lives. What I do for an hour and 15 or an hour and 20 minutes, depending on how long-winded the preacher is on Sunday morning. Maybe a half an hour in the morning for a quiet time, and then what I do with the rest of my life. This part is Jesus's time, and the rest of it is mine. Sometimes we do it by living by what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. This attitude that's more like, well, it doesn't really matter what I do or how I live because Jesus died for my sins. I'm forgiven. Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus, needing Jesus to be living and incarnate. We want to live under the sign of Jesus without necessarily having our lives being turned upside down. And Jesus refuses to give anyone that sort of sign. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's totally upside down. But that's exactly the story of the rest of Jesus' life as he turns his face towards Jerusalem. He does not save himself but loses himself for our sake. What else would it mean to follow him but to abandon self-preservation for him and for the sake of others? When Jesus' followers heard that word, if they had heard this phrase, take up your cross and follow me, um, they, it was not hyperbole in their culture. The cross meant death. As I was uh, preparing the slides and looking for a, a cover uh, for, a, for the, the cost of discipleship from Bonhoeffer, one of the covers had a noose on it. And I thought, I can't put that on the screen. This is what the disciples would have heard. Take up if anyone would come, up, come after me, let him deny himself and take up his own death and follow me. Die to those things and live the, the life I give you. And the truth is, if you've already died, you've already, you're already dead to yourself, what do you have to lose? What is there that you can't uh, endeavor to do in following Jesus? This is the Christian life. And for the record, it's not just how you become a Christian, right? Coming to this moment where you're at the end of yourself and you say, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, Jesus, uh, forgive me. And it's not just our hope in an age to come that we'll have eternal life with him, but this is the way that the day-to-day -day Christian life of discipleship is lived, moment by moment, 
the moment-by-moment challenge to believe that in this little moment, dying to myself is what Christ calls me to do. Putting someone else before me is what Christ calls me to do. Confessing my sin and my arrogance and uh, my, my own rebellion is what Christ calls me to do. Bonhoeffer says that uh, that is the beginning of communion with Christ. Will I choose to believe that admitting my sin and my failure and my hatred and my greed and everything that I brought in here, uh, can, I, can I believe that uncovering all of those things will actually lead to life because it feels like exposure, like dying of exposure? Will I choose to believe that I don't need just a little bit more before I can give some away? Will I take a step of faith and decide to believe that telling the truth and the whole story instead of trying to spin things my way will actually lead to freedom and resolution and reconciliation in relationships instead of just the death that it feels like. I don't want anybody to know what I've done. Can I die to my need to demand restitution? There are people in this room who are owed a pound of flesh from somebody for what's been done to me, what's been done to my family, what's being done to my people. Can we die to our need for restitution? That sounds like the opposite of winning. Sounds too costly. Bonhoeffer says, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, but it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It's costly because it costs a man his life, but it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. Some might say, it's too much for God to ask me to give up my rights. I, I have certain rights that I don't have to give up to follow Christ. I'm an American. Is it more than God asked from Christ to give up? Some might say, it's too much for God to ask me to submit my sexuality to Christ. I'm free. I can do what I want. Is that more than God asked from Christ? Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but for whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I think this is one of the beautiful things about practicing Lent. You know, so as far as the Christian calendar goes or the story, the story goes, we're told that Jesus went to the desert for 40 days to prepare for his ministry. And so he's chosen that 40-day season before Easter to follow him in, uh, in prayer and fasting. And as far as the, the, that calendar goes, we take the next 40 days and we walk the path that Jesus walked towards Jerusalem, reading those passages, considering what the meaning of the cross is. Uh, follow him towards Jerusalem and towards uh, the fact that there he gave himself up for our sin. But it's, uh, uh, it's also a season that you may or may not have heard is a time when uh, Christians across history have practiced 
practiced spiritual disciplines like fasting or um, living more simply, giving extra or doing meditative prayer. And I would just say that those things in Lent are just that, they're practice. We, we, uh, we practice intentionally teaching ourselves to believe that uh, we'll find life that Jesus promises when we open up our hands and give away the life that we're trying to cling onto. That uh, we'll find, uh, when we practice believing that our time and our treasure and all of the good things that we have to have are not actually ours to keep, but that they've been given to us to be gifts, to be given away, like Christ gave everything away to us. In Lent, uh, if, you, if you choose to practice something like this, and it's not, uh, it, it's not a requirement, we're not giving up things because we want to do penance. It's not a season where we try to punish ourselves for our sin. Christ has already taken care of that. He has received the penalty for our sin. We're practicing giving life. We're practicing giving hope. We're practicing giving time. We're practicing giving attention. All of these things that we have been given, uh, we're, we're practicing believing that we don't have to hoard those things, but that we can die to ourselves and give those things away. And that in however costly that feels, uh, we will discover grace what it means to serve a God who gave himself away for us. Bonhoeffer says that real grace, the grace of Jesus, is costly grace. He says it's costly because it condemns sin, but it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of his son. Yea, you were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap to us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives, but, del but delivered him up for us. And this is what we prepare for uh, this season of Lent.